I'm Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Borana of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello and welcome back, or welcome, in fact, to this episode of the On Air podcast. It is going to be another very British royal family heavy episode, which is not our fault. It is the fault of the British (laughs) royal family for being very dramatic all the time and never giving us a week off. The first uh, one we wanted to talk about, which kind of mixes a news story that came out and a few questions we've had, which is the story that came in the newspapers that the Queen was officially making Windsor her home and she would not be returning to Buckingham Palace. When I saw all of these stories in the press, I was honestly just slightly confused because I was like, we, we already knew that. Um, did, we already, did we not already know that? Am I the only one who knew that? Did I imagine all of these things happening? When they, initially when she moved out of Buckingham Palace, it was because there was renovations, um, which were going to be going up this, well, they're still ongoing. And that was before the pandemic. So, you know, at that point it was like, well, she's moving out of Buckingham Palace, she's going to Windsor. And then COVID happened and she had no real reason to be in London. So she stayed where she was comfortable. And then obviously Prince Philip died. And so there were more stories at that point that she was going to stay in Windsor forever. And this story that has come out, like there's no source for it. There's no statement from the palace. It, so it to a reader, I'm just like, well, they've told us this at least three times already. My theory is that maybe something has changed behind the scenes. The palace do this a lot where they um, they don't go on record, but they kind of unofficially confirm things. But to a reader, it just seems like the same story for a fourth time. Yeah, so the official statement, well, official statement, official news statement essentially said, the Queen will never again live at Buckingham Palace, Windsor's her forever home, and she'll travel for work. Which, I mean, like you just said, is what she's been doing for the last few years which makes it seem really kind of like and but I think it ties in to the fact that we are um we're coming out of the pandemic so we are seeing the royals more and obviously the queen is having um some kind of mobility issues it was like you said probably an unofficial way of the palace just kind of heading off any suggestions when she doesn't go back to Buckingham Palace they know that if the Queen doesn't go back to Buckingham Palace, there will at some point be some people being like, it's because she's on death's door. She spent a lot of her time at Windsor anyway. She's an old lady. Her work schedule's decreasing anyway. It makes sense for her to be somewhere where she feels comfortable, where she can move around more easily, where all of her stuff is. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's part of a few different stories that have been circling of late around housing so there have also been stories about the Cambridges are going to move to Windsor and Prince Charles where is he going to go when is he going to go to Buckingham Palace or not when he's the monarch none of this has been confirmed by the palace at all but there is just, there has just been a flurry of conversation about where's everybody going to live I think the Buckingham Palace one is always so interesting because it's very much like in like the public's view it's like the heart of the monarchy but then in the royal family's view it's like their big office and there have been these stories, so stories about, like you said, Charles being like, well, like he's not going to live at Buckingham Palace. He's going to uh, work there, but he'll live in his houses. By all accounts, Buckingham Palace isn't a comfy place to live. It's a big old castle. Whereas, you know, even things like Windsor are a lot smaller, so are easier to, you know, make feel a bit more homely. None of this has come from the palace at all, but there have been so many stories. There's probably a, a sort of a kernel of truth running through all of them. 
works. Yeah, I mean, there's also the palace do this a lot where they sometimes like leak things and they get a sense of the public mood towards it before they actually decide whether or not they're going to do it. I think on the whole, I don't really care where they live to, to you know, any great degree, except from I would be slightly irritated if the Cambridges moved out of Kensington Palace just because the public spent millions on renovating Kensington Palace for them to live in. And they assured us at the time that the reason it was okay that they were spending millions was because this was going to be their family home for the long term. So if they then move everything to Windsor and make Windsor their primary home rather than Kensington Palace, then I would feel a bit cheated. They always had like their their family home, which essentially is Amner up in Norfolk, and then their their working home, which is Kensington, which is still where they live most of the time because it's where the kids go to school in London. I don't mind if they want to move out of Amner Hall and get somewhere mm. near Windsor because that's their own house. And this is the same thing I said when the Sussexes made Frogmore sort of cottage their yeah. home. If you are going to be a senior royal, you need a base in London. Like even the Queen, when she said she, well, when they said she was moving out essentially to Windsor full time, it was she would still work in London when necessary. Yeah. Um, and she's 96. So it probably sounds harsh to people when we say that they shouldn't be living in Windsor as their main home. Like I know there are going to be a lot of people like, why does it matter to you where they live as long as they're doing their work? Blah, blah, blah. And I also think in in I've heard, I've spoken to friends in the US in particular about this. For me, anything longer than about an hour is a really long journey in a car. Whereas to somebody yeah. in the US, that's like, you know, it's nothing. It's such a big country. Living in Windsor and commuting into London for a British person is actually quite significant. So it would feel like a step in the wrong direction to move their base out of London. If they want it as a country home, absolutely fine. None of my business. But if they want it to be their main home, it feels like a, a step in the wrong direction to move away from the centre of where everything is. The only way I would be comfortable with any of them moving their primary race away from London would be if they moved it to Cardiff or Edinburgh. Yes. Yeah. Um, and made like another major city in one of the other sort of four UK countries their base. In terms of the Buckingham Palace thing anyway, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really bother me. And I think, as you said, people think of Buckingham Palace as kind of the the image of the monarchy and it's so heavily associated with the monarchy. But actually the house that matters to the monarchy is St. James's Palace. All of the diplomats that the Queen meets, they officially present their credentials to St. James's Palace. And when a monarch passes away, they have to have a meeting that declares the next monarch. And that always has to take place at St. James's. So St. James's is actually the one that kind of matters to the constitutional running of the monarchy. Buckingham Palace is just the one that's the most opulent and that they have all their state banquets and things in. And you don't really need to live there for that to happen. I think it's interesting to note that we talk a lot about these houses and um, Buckingham Palace and Windsor and, you know, Sandringham and Balmoral. Um, And a lot of people are like, but the Queen has got all these houses. Aren't they all like equally important? Mm. Um, And in some ways, yes, I'm sure to the Queen, they all have a big, important meaning in her heart. But some of they all have essentially different status. Uh, and so we thought that we would do a little bit of a introduction to kind of how royal residences, particularly the British royal family, um, how they work. Yeah. So there are there are kind of two main categories of royal houses. There's the, there's the private and the public. You you do kind of associate the British royal family with four main properties: with Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, Sandringham House, and Balmoral. 
Um, and Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle are both crown properties. So they belong to the crown. If Britain decided to abolish the monarchy, they would no longer belong to the royal family. They would belong go back to the state, essentially. They are given to the monarch and her or his family to do their work in. Whereas Sandringham and Balmoral, which is where the Queen spends so much of her time, she spends August and September um, in Balmoral and she spends sort of January, February, March up in up in Sandringham. They are her private homes and are owned by her as Elizabeth rather than as the Queen. When we use this word the crown, I think a lot of people assume that that's just another term for the monarch and it's it's not really. So it's a quite a complicated thing, um, but the crown is kind of, it's it's a symbolic word or phrase for the whole running of the country. So the crown as a sort of phrase usually includes the monarch, but it also includes uh, the government, the judiciary. Um, so when you talk about the crown, the queen as an individual doesn't own something because it's owned by the crown. She usually is able to access it, but it's owned by something that doesn't really exist. It's owned by a symbol. It's owned by a concept, which is a very strange thing to kind of um, explain to people. There are obviously palaces that were once functioning sort of crown palaces, if you want to call them that word, but aren't anymore. So I'm thinking, you know, Hampton Court Palace, which quite famously was where King Henry VIII lived, but it's not a crown property anymore. It doesn't have any connection to the crown to the running of the country today it's essentially a big museum yeah so in terms of the ones that are publicly owned there's kind of there's two yeah there's two categories there's the historic royal palaces which are the ones that are um, that were connected to the monarchy but are no longer being lived in and occupied royal palaces which are um, ones where the royal families still live in them and there's a, there's slightly different agencies who uh, or individuals who have kind of control of the running of those different houses depending on which category they fall into but they are all publicly owned and I think you want to be looking for things like who is um, paying for renovations uh, or you know could they leave it to somebody in their will like the Queen can't decide to give Buckingham Palace to you know Harry and Meghan. And then there's always the question of if Buckingham Palace and the Crown Properties are the Crown Properties why do these non-working or, you know, part-time royals live in them? Eugenie and Beatrice live on crown properties, but they're not working for the crown. They're essentially, within all the crown properties, another sort of two sub-genres of houses. Um, and you get ones that are leased from the crown and grace and favour properties. Yes. So, I mean, we briefly considered calling our podcast Grace and Favour just because your name is Grace. <laughs> but um, my name is not Favour, so that unfortunately didn't work. When we talk about these properties, we maybe assume that only royals live in them, uh, and that's not necessarily the case. If you are working on behalf of the country, then you can't really take another job to be able to pay your rent, and rent in central London in a palace would be extortionately expensive. So those royals who are working for the country, it's kind of like, as an exchange, they are allowed to live for free in these properties. And it's not just royals who are, have grace and favour properties, so that, that's where they are, don't pay rent. Um, it's also uh, sometimes staff members. So like as part of your contract, if you're the private secretary of you know, a duke or a duchess or something, you 
might be able to have a free home that you live in because it's kind of part of the package of being able to work there. There are, Then there are those other royals who live uh, within the, the grounds of a palace, um, but they they do pay rent. Uh, those ones are generally the ones who are kind of not working for the family. But the reason that they kind of get special treatment, like I couldn't just apply and go and live in Kensington Palace. Those homes are sort of seen as being very sensitive because you have a obvious access to uh the royals and so they genuinely they generally see that they can't just give it out to anybody because it would be a bit of a security risk it would violate privacy and so a lot of the homes that are on royal land um although the rent is being paid and and the person isn't getting them for free they they are sort of given to royals because it's just easier to have the queen's granddaughter living in that house than to have a random stranger who could be secretly taking photographs of the queen sunbathing in her garden you know it's not only royal residences that are grace and favor residences like you said i mean 10 downing street is a grace and favor residence it's somewhere where it is given to someone to do a job it's always interesting with particularly with the crown properties because you have to have an element of privacy and secrecy and security because of so much particularly places like Buckingham Palace and Clarence House mm-hmm. uh, of where so many state things happen but then when you know Prince Andrew for example who lives in the Royal Lodge or when Harry and Meghan uh, moved into Frogmore Cottage they were and they lease and like they leased it so Harry and Meghan obviously quite famously said they were going to pay back the cost so they would lease it off the royal family um, they don't lease it at market value. <laughs> no, no, no. There was a quite a big scandal at one point because uh, some of the people like Prince and Princess Michael, who were not working royals, were getting homes in Kensington Palace for free. And they weren't really doing anything in exchange for that. And so that was obviously massively controversial. And so I think since then, there's been a general shift towards trying to be a little bit more sensible so if we look at the examples of Royal Lodge that were mentioned or the Wessexes in uh, they have a home in Surrey called Bagshot, those homes were offered to the royals as a grace and favour home. They could have they could have stayed in them um, for free, but they chose to pay rent. Essentially, um, it was you know sort of a lump sum that they chose to pay. Those are their country homes. Those are not their main residences in London where it feels like, you know, they have more of a justification for being able to live there for free it was sort of felt that that was the more sensitive approach. But even then, the amount of money that they paid, if you look at a house of a similar size in these areas, which are nice areas, when they're in Surrey and not cheap areas of the country, they do get an astonishingly good deal. You just need to look at a home website and see that it's not market rate. And also they quite frankly couldn't afford it because the cost of one of those houses at market rate is would be extortionate there is a kind of logic to it it's not I think there's a misconception sometimes that you know if a royal lives on royal property that means that they're living there for free and that we're somehow um covering all of the costs of things for them um but that's not that's not really the case like there might be some work that is done by the taxpayer um but because it's a they own the building we own the building essentially so as where it's like a landlord relationship weirdly the public issues with royals and finances is very sort of non-committal and some things mm. really annoy the public and their relationships with royals and and money and everything and some things are like oh it's fine but the the renovations always tend to be the big one because they'll announce it with like oh Buckingham Palace is getting a 40 million pound makeover and 
that is one of the rare occasions where it is essentially being paid for by the taxpayer. It is the, mm-hmm. the weird finance rumours are true because essentially in a weird way we own we are the landlords of Buckingham Palace and yeah. we rent out to the Queen and um, when Buckingham Palace needs work done we do sort of deal with it but I think a lot of that is also when people think of renovations they tend to think the Queen's getting gold-plated wallpaper put on you know for this this big Buckingham Palace renovation a lot of it is structural and because Buckingham Palace is such a major place in the monarchy in London it's one of those ones where you kind of do need it to be in functioning order yeah I mean wasn't there a story about the ceiling falling in and almost crushing somebody who worked there or something like that and I also think the misconception, and this is maybe a separate episode in itself, you know, fi- royal finances. Buckingham Palace is slightly different because the Queen did get extra money to be able to do that renovation. But if we look at the renovation of something like Frogmore or something like Kensington Palace, uh, both of which were kind of renovations that got a lot of negative press attention, no new money was actually given to the royal family to do those renovations. The royals get a set amount based on the percentage of the Crown Estate profits they they have a level of freedom as to how they actually allocate that and they also aren't allowed to have too much money in their reserves so they kind of have to spend as much money as they can and so the Kensington Palace money or the Frogmore cottage money that was spent doing their renovations was money that they always would have had they just might have used it on transport instead if they hadn't had the renovations the current arrangement is that we are the landlord of that property so we have a kind of obligation to fund essential things that need to be done to make something safe and also a lot of the time it doesn't actually cost us any more money so if you have a problem with public funds being spent on renovations your problem is actually with the entire system and not just with that one particular renovation and so getting mad about that one situation is a bit pointless you know if you aren't upset about the fact there is a monarchy and you are willing to pay for that monarchy and you're willing to pay for the Cambridges to have somewhere to live you also need to be willing to give them that place to live and make it Mm -hmm. suitable for a family but yeah but I think so I think there is there is real clarity around what is a private home and what is a as a public home like you can go on Wikipedia if you want to and you can see the list but I think that um it is interesting to maybe think a little bit about how things ended up in that category at one point in time the monarch ran the country and so it didn't really matter whether a home was publicly or privately owned because it kind of was all the monarch's money anyway but of course over time that kind of generally sort of shifted and the monarch didn't run the country anymore and the money was sort of handed over and so a lot of homes that are now publicly owned were homes that were privately purchased by royals at one point in history it's like Buckingham Palace was one that was purchased by the royal family privately in theory that could happen with other homes you know there have been conversations about maybe Prince Charles will leave Balmoral to the Scottish government in terms of like why the royals move around quite a lot you know none of it is confirmed but it makes sense like they've only got a limited number of homes really that they that sounds really stupid because they don't have a limited number but you know you know what I mean like they can't just move to a random home in the middle of in central London like that's not going to work the security risk would be too high so when somebody is sort of nearing the end of their life or when there's somebody who moves out of the country it makes sense that they would take that opportunity to kind of think well I'm now moving up in the ranks so I'm going to need more space for an office and 
if they wanted some office space at Kensington Palace, for example, they'd be looking at somebody's home, somebody who currently lives there. And so they might think, well, if we relocate them to a different place, then we can use their home for office space. So it just makes sense that like when the circumstances shift, the people shift. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm interested. I still think Buckingham Palace will essentially just function as a massive office. That I can see Charles kind of being practical and thinking, well, if I don't live there as much, if I only go there for a couple of state banquets and galas and things a year, then we can rent out more of the space for longer parts of the year and make more money. So it's probably quite a sensible, practical decision. So we're moving into our light bites now and there's been some news that's come out recently that the Queen is not going to go to the Commonwealth Day service which is happening. By the time this podcast goes out that will have already happened but um, but yes yeah, she's not going to be going. She has asked Prince Charles to sort of lead the event in her place and the palace have said it's not related to illness but of course as soon as the news came out I had people being like, the Queen is dying. I mean, this is a weekly occurrence at this point. Yeah, I mean, people freak out about the Queen continuously at the moment. And I'd like to point out, I said way back in November, when she first kind of had to take that, she went to hospital at that time, I said, it's clearly a mobility issue. They haven't actually said themselves why she's not going. I mean, I tried to think of some reasons, and there were obvious ones, one being she's old. I don't want to sound like dismissive of older people, that's not what I'm trying to do, but when you're in your 90s, your default state is always going to be less healthy than somebody who is in their 20s or 30s. And we've seen in recent engagements that she's been quite open about the fact that she can't move around very easily. And so sitting in a chair in Westminster Abbey, you know, those chairs don't look very comfortable. It would just be a really uncomfortable thing. And so that's not the same as there being some kind of new specific illness. So the palace are probably right that it is not related to an illness but she is just older you know linking to what we just said about the fact she's now living in Windsor mm-hmm. to go to the Commonwealth service which is essentially an hour mm-hmm. she would have to drive from Windsor to Westminster Abbey get out walk all the way to the sort of nave to the altar of Buckingham uh, of Westminster Abbey sit in a chair for an hour get back out again and then drive all the way back to Windsor and even if she came down the night before and went back the next day that's all a lot of traveling for someone in their 90s. No, I wouldn't want to do that. And I'm 29. So I think it's completely natural and probably something we're going to see more and more. And I don't think that in itself it is a cause for concern. And, you know, her and Philip both spent quite a while being very stubborn and sort of being like, well, no, we're still going to go, even though I can barely move. I'm still going to go and I'm still going to wear this giant crown. And, I'm, you know, and now they seem to be kind of thinking, well, actually, no, I need to be smart. And I think the other sort of element of it is that this is this is really feeling like a transitionary period more and more she is thinking about you know what's what's the world going to look like when i'm no longer the queen i need to start getting people prepared for for this and i think it's a really sensible way to do it because i'm actually starting to get used to the royal family without her being in it i sometimes forget that she's still around because she doesn't <laughs> do as much and i do think that this way around where people can get used to seeing charles more and the queen less is much smarter than her being super super active right up until she becomes seriously ill and then suddenly we don't have a monarch and then she dies and we've got this transitionary period that we weren't prepared for. The Queen is very aware of the kind of you know appearances of the royal family and of the head of the royal family 
and you know over the years they've made lots of little changes so you know when she goes to uh St George's Chapel in Windsor she doesn't go up the main uh through the main entrance with all the steps they she goes through the side entrance and they make these little changes I was watching ITV News on on Friday just after the news came out and they were talking to Chris Ship and he was saying that as far as he knows it is mobility because the Queen is doesn't want to make the move yet to be in a wheelchair in public because obviously her mother was obviously Princess Margaret used a wheelchair in public and at some stage people will use wheelchairs because they're old and they're tired and you know but I think we've seen what the reaction was like when the Queen used a walking stick so (laughs) I think the reaction of seeing the Queen in a wheelchair especially with no kind of like prior warning would completely overshadow Commonwealth Day and Commonwealth Observation Day is kind of equally important to the Queen as Remembrance Sunday. They're the events where it makes sense for her to be like actually this is who's going to be doing it in a few years anyway. Mm-hmm. He's going to take charge because he knows what he's doing. He's had 70 years of practice. I would be loving it like just being able to sit at home in my pyjamas. Most of the photographs we get of her these days are sort of midriff up so she could be wearing pajama bottoms and slippers she'd have a nice hot water bottle like that's how I'd be queen yeah like you said she's probably sat home and like oh I really want to go and they're going if you go you've got to go in a wheelchair it's like no no she's <laughs> like well you've got to choose either the wheelchair or you stay here and she's like fine Charles will go I bet she's such a stubborn person to have as your patient <laughs> if you're a doctor you're always like well, I think you should rest and she's like what poppycock I'm not gonna rest why would I need to do that I'm fine I think you know we've both said that for the queen the role of monarch is a spiritual vocation yeah. and she's not going to abdicate but this is kind of the next best thing it's working quite well as a, uh, as a transition period as well mm-hmm. because the queen is still there the focus isn't too heavily on charles it's like oh isn't charles being nice helping out his mum you know those those key functions that she has to do as part of the running of the country are the things that she's still doing and everything else is kind of icing on the cake that she doesn't necessarily have to eat <laughs> that's a terrible <laughs> analogy <laughs> um but yeah so we've we've had the queen who's uh cancelled the uh, attendance at the commonwealth day ce- uh, ceremony but we also have the duke and duchess of cambridge have it what's well, not really a cancellation but it has been confirmed that they will not be going to bafta the bafta film awards and so william is the president of bafta and the Duchess has no formal role, but she usually accompanies him and he will be featured in a pre-recorded video message instead. And what they've said is that this is due to diary constraints, whatever that means. I'm not saying I think he should have gone necessarily. If you look back at the presidents of BAFTA and how often they've gone, William is far and above any, like way above what Anne was, way above what any other president of BAFTA's ever done. Um, and I think the diary con- uh, sort of clash thing kind of just made me laugh because it seemed like a blatant lie like it might not be maybe he's got a really busy day but it did just seem they were like uh he's not going because uh there's a clash he's got something else on like yes what on seven o'clock on sunday night yeah diary constraints is always a weird one to me just because yeah they're all of their official engagements are published in the court circular in the times so everybody can see them so if he doesn't have something in the diary for that same afternoon or evening Um, then that means that whatever the diary constraint was it wasn't an official engagement and you know maybe it was something related to his job like maybe he's got a briefing meeting or something else that's going on that can't be done at any other time but 
we don't know that. So it very, you know, all we know is that it wasn't an official engagement that was taking him away, which means that it might have been something personal. And I think to me, I'm always like, well, what what was a good enough personal thing that was going on with you for you to cancel going to the one thing you do for this organization every year? Did you have parents evening? Like what was what was, what the... was like, you don't have a parents evening on a Sunday. I don't think it'll have much impact on the actual ceremony itself because William usually was the BAFTA Fellowship, just kind of like a lifetime achievement award, and they're not doing that this year because last year they awarded it to um an actor called Noel Clark, who um it transpired that he was being accused of sort of bullying and sexual harassment and that BAFTA had been told about this before they gave him the award but he's still been given the award and so they're now kind of reviewing their processes for how they hand out these non-competitive awards like the lifetime achievement and so uh, for the time being it won't be awarded and so as that's the thing that William usually gives out I think of all the years that he he was going to miss for diary constraints then this is the one that kind (laughs) of makes the most sense I suppose because he wouldn't have actually been doing anything other than sitting in the audience anywhere anyway yeah, maybe you just didn't like any of the films that came out this year. The big question is like, do I care if he's going or not? And like, no. Does whether William and Kate go to the BAFTA awards and, and sit with a bunch of rich people handing out awards to themselves impact my life at all? No, it doesn't. So I think the problem is that William doesn't do much else for BAFTA. I would much rather he didn't go to the BAFTAs and thank Kate in this place. <laughs> and yeah. he did work with like the BAFTA chat throughout the year if you look at examples of other royals like Kate for example she built you know mentally healthy schools which she built with place to be in Anna Freud Centre it's now owned by the Anna Freud Centre um which were two of her patronages and they, she kind of worked with them to build that project or um she did the impact program which uh worked with action on addiction you know she works with her patronages to kind of build a specific project is not just going and visiting saying hello and leaving again whereas William has these there's actually these two presidential roles that particularly stand out to me BAFTA and the Football Association the FA he just kind of goes to the main events and then doesn't really do anything around that like building a separate project in the same way that that Kate has done with a few of her things and I think there's so many opportunities where he could be getting involved with his presidential roles in particular. He'll sometimes do this thing where he sort of says a statement about like, I really care about this issue and then does nothing for it. So <laughs> like with BAFTA, he spoke in his speech about kind of diversity and increasing diversity in filmmaking. And he did the same with the FA where he spoke about racism in football and then has not done anything for it for years. There is there is scope for him to do things that I, I think actually would impact people's lives more than just going to an award ceremony or going to a football game so I would like to see him do more of that but if he isn't going to do it he should at least be going to the awards (laughs) yeah there's so much he could do with BAFTA I think you know particularly coming out of the pandemic where the arts took such a hint um, and particularly those behind the scenes people the the crew essentially like those like when they did the Bond premiere and you had uh, the Wellses and the Cambridges and it was a massive big thing and it was the front page of every newspaper and it's still the mm. pictures getting used. It was a huge deal, but it, did, it didn't do anything for James Bond. <laughs> it didn't do anything for art in general. People who were going to go and watch the new James Bond film still went to watch yeah. it. People who weren't 
weren't inspired to go and watch it. James Bond as a franchise can survive <laughs> a failed movie. So like, I don't know, it's kind of like the difference between wearing Louis Vuitton and wearing a small local designer. Like, yes, both will get exposure, but it matters a lot more to one than the other. Yeah, like when Kate went to the um, A Street Cat Named Bob premiere, she went in her role as patron of Action on Addiction because the um, film was about uh, was the true story of a man who suffered from addiction and how he sort of turned his life around. It was still she still went to a premiere and just turned up. But before she went to premiere earlier that day, she'd done an event with um, her patronage and then she met the person that was behind and it was all linked. Um, And I don't mind if they want to turn up to a Bond premiere every now and then. Bond seems to be the one they go for. But I think there's nothing stopping William going to, you know, a lot of these British films as in his role as BAFTA president during filming or talking to the behind the scenes people on a big British film or on a big British television show because he only ever seems to do the BAFTA film awards. Yeah. Not the BAFTA television awards. Yeah, or the BAFTA Craft Awards because BAFTA does games, it does children's TV. If he never went to another BAFTA awards ceremony again, but was doing all of this other work, that would be fine with me. But because he's not doing it, he just he has to do at least one of them. <laughs> Heading out from our light bites, I think this is probably the one section where we're gonna make a nod to some other royal families. Um. And we are going again to be talking about uh, the royal reaction to the U, uh, the situation in the Ukraine. We're starting to move away from the initial statements of support and into more tangible action. And it's coming from different royal families than it was before. And I think it would be interesting to look at it and sort of see how it's continued, really, how this sort of focus has stayed over these sort of the next week. Um, and the first kind of, I think, placed ahead really is Sweden because last time we spoke about how Sweden are apolitical and they're neutral and Sweden's been neutral and more since the 1800s and they don't get involved and then they immediately proved us wrong. <laughs> yeah the, the king not only did they prove us wrong but the king showed up in military uniform at a military event to talk about a war um, so they just went full <laughs> but it, I said so, yeah so when, that is the biggest shift really is like when we were recording the podcast they'd done things like meet with um the foreign affairs committee but they they kind of were not explicitly saying that it was about ukraine and there had been no official statement that had come from them it's not that they don't care as individuals it was because sweden had not yet decided what their position was going to be and what how the uh, the government itself had hadn't decided eventually the the prime minister of sweden sort of did a speech where she talked about um the support for the Ukraine and support for sanctions against Russia and so then it became okay for the roy- the royals to also talk about how they felt about the situation. I think I really liked how in all the other kind of statements and you know speeches made it was very much Ukraine focused and then cargo stuff just came out and was like Russia have messed up. I was like well, okay we're starting big we're gonna name names. But I think like the events that have followed have all been fairly in keeping with what you would expect and with what other royal families have been doing. The king, the queen, uh, the crown princess and Prince Daniel all went to a peace service. Carl Gustaf and Victoria have sort of kept doing meetings with different people. So they've met with the Swedish Migration Board um, specifically to learn about the preparations being made for Ukrainian refugees with the armed forces to learn about how they are monitoring the situation in the Ukraine. 
like you said last week they had meetings but they were just we're meeting with the security council and now they're like we're meeting with the security council to discuss the yeah. ukraine they're largely about the kind of humanitarian side there are some sort of military engagements in there as well but you know there's a lot of focus on sort of like peace and diplomacy and collaboration and refugees and that's very in keeping with what's happening with other royal families the only thing that i think i don't think any other royals have yet done is that they actually went to a fundraising event sweden are very good at getting these telethons going um and they had like a telethon sort of fundraiser thing um that Crown Princess Victoria and Prince Daniel went to. There have still been lots of other like little small events that have happened. Willem Alexander and Maxima in the Netherlands, they cancelled an upcoming state visit to Greece and then they met with the Ukrainian community in the Netherlands. Uh, in Belgium, Queen Mathilde and King Philippe went to an emergency centre for Ukrainian refugees. Uh, Crown Princess Mary in Denmark went to a meeting of the World Health Organization to find out what they're doing to support the delivery of healthcare in Ukraine. So, you know, there's just a few things that have happened uh, that are all from families who were already talking about the situation. And they're all kind of in keeping with what we've heard so far. So monarchs cancelling state visits because it's better for them to be in their own country right now meetings with the ukrainian community meetings around refugees meetings around humanitarian aid that kind of thing yeah i think there were a lot of meetings either with refugees who you know mm. for those countries where they already have refugees to learn about what had been happening or a lot of meeting with the the charities who will be taking care of the refugees which i think is a really sensible way to do it because people who are genuine you know genuinely just left a war zone probably don't want to be talking to a king right now they're probably a bit stressed but talking to the other people giving them the focus seeing what they need briefings about the situation from people who are close to it is a really sensible and sort of empathetic way of tackling the situation without putting too much pressure on the people who don't need that pressure there's a balance to be struck between uh, showing your support and doing what you can but also respecting people's space and needs and recognising that every minute you take talking to a, a volunteer at a centre is a minute that they can't be doing their job. And obviously there was a, another visit to a <laughs> cultural centre, the Ukrainian Cultural Centre in London, um, and the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge went to meet with Ukrainians, the Ukrainian community of London, and to meet with the volunteers who are sorting out their donations. And then the engagement was immediately overshadowed by <laughs> something that happened during it let's focus on the nice <laughs> things just initially first before we get going yeah. into the the controversial stuff that's happened there were some nice little moments like one thing that prince william did say was that they've been talking about this with their children um and you know that their kids have been coming home asking questions and it had been really difficult for them to know what to say and you know that was something that we talked about in our last episode so i i really like that little anecdote yeah they um also brought some treats that apparently <laughs> kate had whipped up in the kesing palace kitchens they brought uh chocolate brownies and also like granola bars which seemed yeah. like the worst treat ever um and obviously she's not the first royal who's done that. Megan quite famously bought her banana bread when she was in Australia. Camilla's been taking treats to engagements for years. But you know, it was a it was a very nice touch. And she said, you know, it's the least we could do. We should have done more. We should, you know, come back and actually do some work for you. They she said it was because you might not have time to eat. You've got so much to do. Have a snack, which yeah. was one of those things that just seemed like a very genuine thought from her. 
uh yeah i mean granola bars would probably put me off to be honest i'd be like well it's nice that you've come to visit us but granola bars but i i think it was a very like kate move you know it sort of felt like homely and soft which is kind of the image that is goes along with her yeah and i think yeah there are a lot of nice moments with those kind of interactions between the cambridges between the ukrainian family and uh, Ukrainian family, either Ukrainian population of London who were there representing them um, with the volunteers. It was quite, you know, there were quite a few hugs and things between mm -hmm. them. And it seemed to be a genuinely warm engagement from everyone who was there. And during the event, the Duke of Cambridge made a comment that uh, then spiralled out of the event into a massive deal. So I'm going to say what he actually said, the official thing he actually said that we've heard. So he said, Everyone's horrified by what they're seeing. On the news every day, it's just, it's unfathomable to actually witness it and see it. For our generation, it's very alien to see that it's happening in Europe. In the papers, it was published as Prince William says it is unlike in Africa and Asia, it is alien to see war in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and that, quite rightly, spiralled into a massive debate. Initially, the quote that came out was the misquote that was the first thing that anybody had heard and um rightfully so everyone was raging about that and then it, a video was released and Richard apologized because the video showed that there was no such comment about Africa or Asia but a lot of people had already reacted to the first story and so even once the correction came out there was a lot of people saying well no I stand by my story or I stand by my point of view it took on a little bit of a life of its own. I think I think the thing is, you know, journalists are not superhuman. There is a difference between somebody making a mistake and somebody deliberately creating a story that is not true or deliberately covering up a story. The obviously originally it was tweeted by Richard Palmer um, and as tweets are, there's no punctuation. I think it was just a quote. Um, mm -hmm. And then in the Daily Express um, article, it had and this is what always kind of stood out for me, the it's alien to see this happening in Europe, which is the quote from William was in quotation marks, was in inverted commas. Yeah. And then the Asia and Africa bit wasn't. And that was copied into every newspaper in every tweet. I think I mean, I looked at it and was like, well, that's what he said. And this is clearly he must have maybe made this at a different point yeah. in the event or this is what it was referring to within the conversation. I don't know. But there was a clear lack of reading comprehension. I think that sometimes some of the people who are doubling down, uh, like the journalists in particular, and saying, well, we took the, the what their argument is, is that it, this came from the Press Association, who are the most reliable thing in the entire world. And so they couldn't be possibly be expected to fact check that this had happened. But yeah, the original piece in the Express said, William 39 said Britons are much more used to seeing conflict in Africa and Asia, quote, it's very alien to see this in Europe. We are all behind you. You know, I got sent it by a friend. And I'd written down the first response that I had when I when she sent me that passage. I'd love to see the full quote as the second part is iffy, but he didn't actually mention Africa and Asia in the quote bit. So I, somebody who has no journalistic experience, who does not get paid to do this podcast or to talk about royals, immediately when I saw that quote, my thought was, oh, well, the Africa and Asia bit is not a direct quote. And so I should really try and find out what the direct quote was before I react to that statement, because it, it would be a big reaction if, if that was what he actually said and so it's very strange to me that a journalist is like well I couldn't have possibly have been expected to pick up that this wasn't an accurate quote <laughs> when 
I, as just a random stranger, that was my literally my first thing that I thought. I mean, surely they know. I mean, I'm sure as a journalist, you know what a inverted comma is. You know that. You know what a quote is and how to tell what a quote is because it's in quotation marks. Like mm-hmm. the fact that and it's it's not a fun, casual quote as a quote. It's inflammatory. It's mm-hmm. with Africa and Asia in there. It is blatantly racist. So to see that and to think, oh, I'm just going to shove that in the paper. That's fine. And not think I'm just going to double check before I put something in that is essentially a form of libel. <laughs> and I also I found this sort of weird assertion that the Press Association is incredibly reliable <laughs> to be a really strange thing because the major shareholders of the Press Association are the groups that own the Daily Mail and the Sun. So it is strange to me that those newspapers are not to be trusted ever, and yet are also the pinnacle of trustworthiness and so reliable that you don't even need to fact check what they say. Because another sort of conspiracy was the fact that there was about a 15 hour window from Richard Palmer's sort of initial tweet to the press association's retraction and everyone was like well that's a long time and I'm like it might be but also if you look at the times it was bedtime like it was from like seven at night until like nine in the morning and people aren't necessarily working like Richard Palmer turned his phone off and no one could get hold of him to find out what was going on to me it's ultimately an example that people need to be careful when they're accepting anything that is written in the press you should sort of approach everything with a stance of kind of healthy skepticism Um, You know, I've had lots of people over the years criticise me because I've said things like, well, it's not confirmed, so I'm not going to comment on it. Or that's a hypothetical, so I'm not going to comment on it. I think that if especially if it's something that could alter the way that you think about a person and that is a huge, hugely controversial thing to say, I think that you have to be kind of like, well, there's an extra layer of evidence that I need in order to be able to believe this about that person. Um, so I'm not going to comment on it until I might have my own personal opinions. I might think that something is true or not because we're all biased in our own ways. You know, we all have these weak spots, but there's a difference between sort of thinking something to yourself and broadcasting it publicly when you don't actually have any evidence yet. And I think the fact that this quote was attributed to William and not to Kate made it more believable because William has in the past said a lot of things that are um, on that kind of line of being racist or are inappropriate or are clearly not being thought about and he just said something stupid mm-hmm. and he was the person who made that infamous statement where he said we are not a racist family um, and he's now backed himself into a corner and everything he says will be judged against it it is something where if it had been you know Kate or Camilla or Sophie or Edward there would still have been the same reaction, but I don't think it would have been at the same level because they've not necessarily made the same mistakes, said the same things that William has said in the past. Yeah. So like, I don't, I don't blame people necessarily for believing that it's true without questioning it. Like we we're all capable of doing that. And there are definitely stories that have got no evidence to support them whatsoever that I believe, but that's not the same as, you know, publicly engaging in a conversation about it. Me, you know, that's kind of all about the press, conversation around this story and sort of how I do think people got it wrong but let's I suppose look at what he actually did say. The part that's kind of causing the controversy is where he said it's unfathomable to actually witness it and see it for our generation it's very alien to see that it's happening in Europe. Now he didn't say anything about war he didn't say anything about death or 
destruction or anything. He said, uh, essentially he said to witness it and that. Yeah. But obviously, based on where he was, it was very easy to infer that he's talking about what is happening in the Ukraine. And it's alien to see that happening in Europe. Yeah, the word that seems to be causing a lot of issues is the word alien. When I first read it, nothing stood out to me as about the word alien. And so my first reaction was kind of like, well, is this maybe a British US divide thing again? Because like, I remember watching an episode of The Simpsons when I was younger, uh, maybe a teenager, and there was about Apu, the um, Indian clerk at the Quickie Mart. And he was referred to a few times throughout that episode as being an illegal alien, which I think is a very outdated and um, offensive derogatory term that is used to refer to people who are not in the United States legally. And I actually thought for the entire episode that he was like an extraterrestrial because I'd never heard the word alien used to refer to a foreign person. And, you know, I looked into the law around it. And interestingly, like there are lots of laws that refer to the word alien to mean a foreign person in the UK and in the US. But um, in British law, the word alien was used to refer to foreigners, but it specifically excluded people from the Commonwealth. So in law, an alien you know, would have been somebody from France or Germany, but not somebody from Jamaica. But then I kind of thought about it a bit more and I'm like, well, also I'm a white person. Maybe it is reflective of my experience. Maybe there are lots of um, British people of color who have had the word alien used directed at them. And for them, for them, it's quite a triggering word, you know. And so maybe that I'm sort of blinkered as well. You know, ironically enough, alienate was one of our spelling words last week. So we did a bit of chat about what do you think alienate means? And after they got through the whole, does it mean make you an alien? My kids were like, oh, it means something that's different, a bit like, you know, an alien. And they and I said to them that sometimes it does mean people from another land. And that was shocking to them because they were like, but they're just people. They're not aliens from outer space. And I think that was for them, even though they weren't quite sure what alien meant, they very much associated it with something different or being separate and not someone from a different place because they know the word um immigrant or refugee or foreigner that's what they use I don't know if I went into a class in you know America and taught the same lesson if they would have the exact same reaction and be like well I don't know does it mean separate or ever they would instantly be like someone from a different place I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's a big divide that is so prominent all the way through yeah because I don't I don't want to imply that there isn't racism in the UK or anything like that I I, like obviously there is and ironically (laughs) enough you know there was a huge amount of xenophobia and bigotry directed towards Eastern European immigrants for a very long time. I think it's just like uh, the US dominates a lot of the conversation on the internet. And so I think sometimes people get a little bit confused about what is a British issue and what is an American issue. Like I, I remember seeing a British activist talking about the the cash bail system and how the, it should be removed in the United Kingdom. We don't have a cash bail system in the United Kingdom. That's an American thing. So I, I, that's why I, my, I, my initial thought was that maybe this was a, a cultural difference. It wasn't that I thought that William is incapable of racism or British people are always kind and welcoming to refugees and foreign people because that's nonsense. <laughs> it's just that I thought that word maybe did mean something different. But yeah, at the same time, I don't know because I don't. I'm not a person of color and I've not had those experiences and I've not come from another country as an you know as an immigrant I've come from Scotland so we've had some issues but you know we're still part of the same country (laughs) it's one of those difficult ones that like I can see why people are really angry about it or really upset by it or hurt by it but I also I, I honestly can just say that for me that word itself didn't conjure up any 
particular things and so it's something that I have to maybe think about and reflect on myself um although I did think that the statement itself even if you put that aside was also strange because you know if we want to talk about like conflict or violence Ireland is right there dude like <laughs> you think about Ireland <laughs> yeah in your lifetime there have been but there's been violence in your next door neighbor that killed your father's mentor and you know close friend and I saw a lot of people also talking about things like oh have you forgotten what happened in the Balkans and I think William should know more because of who he yes. is and his position yeah. but British of education does World War II and that's kind of it um so I think it's one of those things where I can see what he's saying but yeah. in his role as the future head of yeah. state in a role where I assume he is well up to date on conflicts around the world, conflicts in Europe, conflicts in the Commonwealth. He should have said, you know, it's, he shouldn't have said it. I think ultimately it is just a reminder of the very privileged background that William will have had. And But I think what's important for me is that, you know, over the years, there have been lots of times where I have said, where Royal has said something stupid and I've said, oh, well, that's not what they meant. If you just, if your defense is just, that's not what he meant then you're putting your own bias into it because you're starting off from the standpoint that this is a good person and they wouldn't want to say something hurtful to somebody. So you're you're automatically assessing it based on, on bias. So yes, I, I don't think that he meant to say anything that potentially would hurt somebody, but at the same time, I can't defend him by saying, oh, well, he didn't mean to be mean because the result is the same, whether he meant it or not. Um, and so I just think he needs to think a little bit more before he says things. Maybe his staff needs to be more representative of different backgrounds. Anybody who's acting like the fact that this, the original statement was incorrect and so therefore everything's fine, I think also is maybe just not thinking about it from the perspective of somebody who doesn't like or doesn't know William very well and doesn't have that warm feeling that you know makes them think, well, I know what he meant. Taking away the, the incorrect sort of initial quote, if you just look at what he said, you can't read it and not be like, oh, it's a bit iffy, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that is the problem. Like, it, I'm white, you know, British, and I have never had to face any kind of discrimination based on where I've come from or the colour of my skin. And the people who he has essentially forgotten in this quote are people who've had to do that. People from, you know, who were in you know, Turkey, in Ireland, in the Balkans. I mean, I don't have the right to say, oh, but he didn't really mean it, so it's okay then. You know, I think he messed up, quite frankly, saying that. And I think the worst thing is it's not the first time he's done that. Even though I didn't initially think he said Asia and Africa, I thought that's what he was very clearly referring to based on the conversation. And I believed that straight away. As someone who tolerates William's existence, (laughs) and I happily was like you know what yep seems like something you would have said he's done it so many times now that he's either willfully misinformed Mm -hmm. or he is being neglectful in his duty it kind of relates back to that conversation that we had earlier about BAFTA and things like that it's like you can't just go to an engagement and say oh isn't racism bad and think that that's enough especially if you're starting off on the back foot. So he needs to kind of do ex- do more. He can't just say the right words. One thing I thought was really interesting was when I was looking at what the other royals had done this week and I looked at, at King Philippe and Queen Mathilde of Belgium, 
Um, and they released a statement after they'd been to visit the refugees. And within that statement, a written statement that was clearly checked by people, they said, this is a humanitarian crisis not seen in Europe since, uh, <laughs> on a scale not seen in Europe since the Second World War. And I was like, oh my God, William is here. Yeah. But I think, like what you said, he's starting off on the back foot because those two things they've said are very similar. Um, and I think that he's put himself in that position. Yeah. And is not doing something to get out of it. It's that that point of view of like, well, I know in my heart that I am not a racist person, so I don't really need to do anything. And there's a diff, you know, there is a difference. Like I think, especially nowadays, at the end of the day, this is now overshadowed what they went there to do. I think that it's not the case that it's being overshadowed because people of color are taking the conversation away from Ukraine. Like they have every right to be annoyed about it and to talk about it and that's fine. It is William who has changed the conversation. He obviously, you know, that every time they go to an engagement, they set out to raise awareness of the organization that they're going to meet. But every time they say something that is going to become the headline, they are taking the focus away from what they were doing. You know, and it, it, I think in the case of when it's like a nice positive anecdote and that makes the headline, there is also the press that have a certain level of responsibility because they've just made the headline something completely pointless that doesn't act, that that doesn't really relate to what they were doing but in a situation like this like that comment in itself does have news value and does is worth looking at and scrutinizing so he is the one who has overshadowed it by not thinking through the things that he says yeah I think we should just stop William ever speaking in public yeah I I mean I made a joke that um on my tumblr that um I would start a petition for the Windsor men to just not be allowed to speak anymore and just the women are allowed to speak in public um, because they just generally make a lot less mistakes and seem like they use their brains slightly more than the men because just uh, William, Charles, Andrew, Harry, all of them, Philip, all of them just (laughs) never seem to actually think about anything before they say it. Okay, so thank you for joining us for our episode today. As always, we would welcome your feedback. So you can get to us on uh, Tumblr and Instagram as On Air Podcast. But yeah, thank you for listening. And hopefully you'll be back with us next week. Uh, So that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.